It's time for the big conversations. Telling stories of movers and shakers, of industry giants and daring professionals. It's time for the conversations that change your perspective on life. The kind of conversations that shape entrepreneurs and move careers forward. If you don't know where these conversations are found, we are sending you a GPS. But if you're listening to this voice right now, you are here. Welcome to the Growth Podcast. This is the GPS. Welcome to another episode of the Growth Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, to our subscribers, uh, thank you for coming back as usual. Um, if you're here for the first time, you have missed out on 40-something episodes of greatness. I hope you can go back and catch up on those, but it's never too late. I'm happy to have you here. Um, if you're watching and you never subscribe, what is wrong with you? But anyway, I know you subscribe after this. Um, we continue with those uh, growth conversations, those upbuilding conversations. Um, we have one just like that um, today on the podcast. And um, I am talking to someone who is, well, I look forward to learning in as much as you do. Um, we are talking about, most of you are very familiar with the book, um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, um, a book by... Um, Stephen Carvey. Uh, and today I'm talking to someone from Franklin Carvey, uh, Zambia. I know it's Stephen Carvey for the book, but Franklin Carvey, he'll explain um, all of that. Please welcome Achewe Chileshi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Sibilanji. It's good to have you. Good to be here. Yeah. So tell us about like Stephen Carvey and Franklin Carvey. Who are you guys? Okay. So I'm here as a facilitator from Franklin Carvey, Zambia. And Franklin Carvey, Zambia has the rights to providing the services and the material from Franklin Covey International. Franklin Covey was started originally by Stephen Covey and the business eventually merged with a training institute called uh, Franklin Institute, if I recall correctly. That's where the name Franklin Covey comes from. All right. And as you said, we're here to talk about this great book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And, um, I think the best way that I can describe this book is it is a result of research. It is not an idea. Stephen Covey didn't wake up one morning and say to himself, hmm, what do I think people can do to be more effective? No. What he did was they did research. And to make this research effective all around the world, they decided to remove cultural biases. So this research was done all across the world. It was done in Africa. It was done in Asia. It was done in Europe. It was done in America. It was done in capitalist countries. It was done in communist countries. It was done amongst those that are very religious, and it was done amongst those that are not, that are very secular. And what they came up with were universal principles that they found that people that are effective in all these societies do. They found that it was universal. Anybody who was effective in a particular society tends to do the same thing as someone else who is effective in any other society. So what Stephen Covey did was to put all those things together into this book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. All right, so um, these seven habits of highly effective people, how can they change someone's life? Fundamentally, phenomenally, in ways that I can't even begin to describe. Basically, this is like moving from stage one to stage 10. And the way the book is designed is in order for us to be able to help others, for example, if I use an example of leading a team, say I'm a leader and I want to be an effective leader, it is not possible to be an effective leader unless I'm effectively managing myself. I cannot expect my team to meet their deliverables if I can't meet my deliverables. So what this book does is it helps each one of us to first get control of ourselves, get a personal victory. Okay. And, and, and what are these seven habits, first of all? Maybe just like outline them and then we'll go further into detail on each, each and every one of them. Okay, great. Uh, in case I mix up the order, I'll have it in front of me, but I do <laughs> not. The first habit is called be proactive. And it's the foundation. It's the beginning. It's where everything starts. Um, and the reason for that is, one, uh, when, when you think about proactivity, a lot of people just think in the singular, simple context of the opposite of being reactive. But it's a lot more than that. Being proactive means you're planned. It means you're organized. It means you're prepared for eventualities. It means you can handle the unforeseen, the unexpected. It means you can make decisions on the fly. It means you can move at the speed of light. Bill Gates wrote a book called Business at the Speed of Thought. Being proactive allows you to do that. It allows you to operate at the speed of thought. If something unexpected happens, you are ready to adjust course and carry on. So that's where it starts. It starts with being proactive. 
After that, we move on to habit number two, which is begin with the end in mind. And begin with the end in mind helps us focus on what to prioritize, what needs to be done first. Because again, when we're dealing with multiple issues, there's an order of events that must take place. If that order of events is not correct, even if the things themselves are correct, things will not work. If I need to build a house, I must acquire the plot first. I must dig the foundation first. I must build the foundation before I can build the walls and the roof. If I try to put the roof before the foundation, I will not have a house. So begin with the end in mind. It's telling me to visualize that end, that house. And then work backwards and make that plan of how I'm going to get to it. I must know where I'm trying to go. My goal. And it talks a lot about this because we must have a goal for everything that we're doing. It's a, it's a key principle of the seven habits of highly effective people. You must have a goal, a short-term goal, a mid-term goal, a long-term goal. But you must know what every interaction is for. Like you have a goal for why you're here today. And likewise, we have a goal for why I'm here today. So it's the same thing in any interaction that you must have. You must know, you must have expectations so that you can measure yourself at the end to see how well you did against your expectations. The next one after that is putting first things first. Now, based on the way I described the other one, I need to say this a bit differently. The previous habit, which was habit two, was about visualizing the end. Putting first things first is the one that's more about prioritizing. So sorry, I used that in the previous example. And this is now what happens first. So you've got all your tasks, but which one do I go to first? Which one do I go to second? Which one do I go to third? So for example, I was speaking to someone today and they're about to go into a job. It's an intern that I'd worked at my office and they're looking for a job and they're wondering what job to get. So I said to them, well, it's very simple. Where do you want to be in five, in 10, in 15 years? Once you picture that job, what are the actions and what are the jobs that will help you get into that job that you want to be in, in five or 10 or 15 years? This is the same. So pick that job today carefully. If you know you want to be an auditor in 15 years, you might as well start in an accounting firm today and start doing your articles for ACCA, SEMA, whatever it is you want to do. There's no point going into a computing job, yet in five years, you want to be an auditor, accounting auditor. So this is the same. Put first things first and make sure that first thing is leading up to your final goal. These three habits, the habit of being proactive, the habit of beginning with the end in mind, and the habit of putting first things first, they're known as a private victory. This is where we sort the self before we go out to help others. So once you've done these, we deem that you have achieved the private victory and you're now ready to help others. Okay. So habit four is the first part of now what happens outwardly. And it's called think win-win. And this habit, it guides us, it helps us to, to not negotiate from a zero sum gain. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is in a negotiation where there are two parties, one does not have to lose for the other one to win. What you're looking for is a situation that is as close as possible to a win for both parties. You want both parties to win. That's what you're looking for. Because if one party loses, you will not be building a long-term relationship. And that's part of the idea here. If you're working in a team and one of your team member loses, your team will not be effective. So that is the habit of thinking win-win. But we take it further than that. It's not just with your team. It's with everyone you interact with. It's with those that work for you. It's for those that work with you, for those that who you work for, those you collaborate with, those you interact with. We are being trained to get into a habit of allowing everyone to come off happy from a situation. So that's think win-win. After think win-win, the next habit is seek first to understand and then be understood. And the concept behind this habit is to make sure that, again, when you're interacting with parties, because remember, we're now dealing with a public victory. It involves interpersonal skills and dealing with other people. People want to be heard. People want to know that you've listened to them before you respond. The same way a doctor has to hear all your symptoms before he can give you an accurate um, diagnosis on what could be wrong with you. So likewise, if you're having a discussion with someone, you need to hear them out fully. You need to hear them to the end. And you need to make sure that you've understood what they've said to you before you can give them a substantive response, one that addresses what they've said to you. So the habit of seeking first to understand and then be understood focuses on that aspect. 
it guides us on how do we become better and more effective listeners so that we can be better and more effective in our responses to the other party. Habit six is synergize. This is now about getting the most of working together. Traditionally in mathematics, we think of one plus one equaling two, but when we synergize, we want one plus one to equal four, to equal six, to equal eight, to equal 10. If you've ever done differential equations in mathematics, you can actually get to a point where one plus one can equal something else other than two. And that's what synergizing is about. It's about saying if I alone can achieve 85% and you alone can achieve 85%, we together can achieve 300%. So it's to get the most of us working together as a team and more people. So that's the habit of synergizing. And again, it goes through all the different steps that are required to do this. One of the most important of which is valuing the input of others. It is impossible to build a long-term relationship with people you work with if you do not appear to value their input. Finally, and this is an interesting one, habit seven, it's called sharpen the saw. And it's the habit of renewal. And it's about looking after yourself. It's about not burning yourself out. It's about doing other things that allow you to remain complete. It's about those things that you do that may not be directly work-related. So for example, at the beginning of this discussion, we discussed an event that I was at this weekend. That's part of my renewal. That's what I do. For some people, they may play chess. For other people, they may be a member of an association. They may be a round tabler. And it may be multiple things. But if you don't do those and you focus purely on work, you will burn out. And the whole idea of the seven habits is you're not a different person at work from the person you are at home. You're the same one person. So the idea is to get you to be effective in all things that you are and to all people with whom you interact. And that's where the habit of sharpening the saw comes in. All right. Uh, which of these habits personally have you mastered? Habit one. Being proactive. Mm. Okay, let's, let's, let's go further into detail. Like now we have a skeleton, we have an outline of the seven habits. Yeah. Number one with being proactive, where yes. do you think people struggle? So with many of these things where we're trying to be better versions of ourselves, one of the biggest challenges any human being will have is self-awareness. So this is the beginning. What do I understand about myself? Do I understand my limitations? Do I know what I can do? But more importantly, do I know what I can't do? That's actually more important than what I can do. So there is a concept of not knowing what you don't know. And that is the worst state a human being can be in. Because when you're in that state, it means you don't know when to seek help. You don't know when to go and Google for further information. You're just not aware that you don't know what you're doing. And it's a dangerous place. A human being at a minimum must know what they don't know. Why? Because that allows you to say, let me seek help here. Let me seek guidance here. Let me research and get further information for this. I think from what I see, from my experience, from all the years of doing these facilitations, but not just that, from also working with different contractors that may come home, be it a person landscaping your garden, someone doing a construction project, someone installing your DSTV. If you pay attention, you start to notice some of these things. So I think that's where I see many people struggle. They are not self-aware, so therefore they can't pick what it is they need to work on. They don't understand how they see things. They're not aware that um, the way they see things may be a bit different to the way everybody else sees things because we're all not the same. Even here in this room, we're not, we won't all see things the same way. We won't all understand the same thing. And the perfect example I can give you is actually a biblical reference. In the Bible, in the New Testament, when Jesus emerged from the tomb, if you read in the different books, the accounts that took place there, there are different descriptions. Now, that doesn't mean the event didn't take place, but it's an insight into the human mind. We all perceive things differently. So despite those people all being there and observing the same event, they came off with different interpretations of what took place. So if we understand that, if we accept that, we start to understand some of our limitations. We start to understand that maybe what I'm seeing is not exactly what's really there. So I think that's where many people struggle. I would start from there. Okay, and in the, in, in the context of the organization, Yes. How can an employee work at being more proactive? So what I see a lot of people struggle with is you have a job description. You're told what you're supposed to be doing. But you still ask a lot of questions around what your job description says. You still don't just go out and do it. 
So being proactive for that employee would mean understanding what's their deliverable and just working to get the delivery, not double checking every third sentence of the standard operating procedure. So if, for example, on Tuesday, the task is for me to get to Cairo Road and back and I've been given a vehicle, I surely shouldn't call my supervisor to ask for the directions and should I use Church Road or Independence Avenue? So being proactive would be just about me getting to the CBD, which is my task for the day, for example. Okay. And, 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 and talking about that habit, how do you develop that habit? Because I know habits, you don't just say, you know what, I think Chewe said, be proactive today. I'm, I've changed, I'm proactive. How do you get to being proactive? It's a very good question. Um, and the process itself is not easy. So I'll take you back to the first thing that I mentioned. For starters, you have to think there's a problem for you to want to work on it. So you have to accept that. And to do that, you have to be at some level of self-awareness. So we start from there, first of all. Let's have an honest conversation with ourselves and debate with ourselves and say, am I effective? And what does that mean? Now, when we do this through facilitation, we obviously interact and we give many examples because for some people, it's still not as straightforward to see. Sometimes you have to dialogue, they have to give you examples, you have to speak to them. But others may pick it up just from reading. So what it starts with is a self-reflection. And an easiest thing I would say is, are you happy with the results you get in life? Are you happy with where you are? Do you think you could have been somewhere else? Are you at level nine and you should be at level 15? And if you're not at level 15, well, why are you at level nine? What is it that's keeping you there? So that's where I would start from. And these are the things that would allow you to say, and you can tell, you can see, you can look at even just things from home. Let's say I said, I'm going to fix this thing six weeks ago and it's still not fixed. That's not being effective. So if I now start to look through and think to myself, but how many of those things have I done? How many promises have I made to different people? And while we're talking about that's the perfect example of something we experience a lot in Zambia, people are unable to tell you that they can't make it or they can't do something or they'll be unavailable. For some reason, they're just unable to say that to you. That's a good place to start right there. Let's all work on being able to tell the other party, I can't make it for next Thursday at 14 hours. That is a big step for many people. And that's the beginning. It starts with a small step. I think in Zambia, we just naturally like to be nice. You know, I feel like it's a negativity, not really negativity, but saying no or disappointing people. No one wants that. You'd rather try and make it work and then you end up disappointing them. I think that that's where the problem is. Um, habit number two. Um, Can I stop you for a second? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because what you said is correct. But what I'd like people to think about though is you actually disappoint them more by making them think you'll make it and you can't. So if we really, 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 really want to keep other people happy, communicating the facts as they are is the best way. For those who are in the service industry, we know even when there's bad news, you must communicate it as soon as you know it, as quickly as possible, and then you must communicate what you'll do to fix it. But it was interesting that you mentioned that because that is correct. People do do that for that purpose, but it doesn't achieve that though. It does the opposite. All right. Yeah. So I was saying habit number two is begin with the end in mind. Um, how, how would this habit apply to, to an entrepreneur? So which entrepreneur can I think of? Um, I'll start with an example and then I'll come back. Yeah. I was watching a program about how Amazon got to where it is today. And two or three years after Amazon was founded, Jeff Bezos wrote to the investors, all the people on Wall Street to tell them that that business is not going to make any profits for 20 years at least. 20 years. And the investors stayed with him and they kept pumping more money. And look at where Amazon is today. Why did he do that? He did that so that Amazon could compete with other people. You see, if they're not worried about profitability, they can compete in a way that other businesses can't. So Jeff Bezos saw the end game 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. And the end game was to make Amazon the biggest online marketplace. And to do that, he knew what he needed to do to achieve that. So as an entrepreneur, what did he do? He thought through what are the steps? Well, how will I compete with other businesses if I'm not making money? Fortunately, in America, they've got a very effective venture capital space that allows businesses to do this. So that's where he went and that's where he turned. And he raised investments for 20 years before they declared a profit. Tesla did that for nine years, so did Facebook. So all of those entrepreneurs, Mark Zuckerberg, um, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, they saw the end and the end was to make this big business, but how are they gonna do it? And that's what they were starting to do. So beginning with the end in mind is right that. Jeff Bezos was at the beginning and he knew the end. It was Amazon being the largest marketplace in the world. So now what do I do? Well, I need to keep operating. And how do I do that? I need funds. How do I get those funds? I can't get a standard loan because to pay back a loan, you must be making profits. What are the alternatives? 
private equity venture capital. And that's what he went to. How does a book help people to actually see the end? Because in Zambia, most people don't see even just beyond five years, you know, even just what are you doing next week? Ah, no, anyway, come over the weekend, I'll let you know, you know, because people don't plan ahead. They don't see beyond tomorrow. Some do, but the majority don't see beyond. Because even like our country, if you go and ask the government, um, where is Zambia in the next 50 years? The, the picture is blurry at best, okay? Because it's sort of like a cultural thing that people don't see the end. They want to 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 take, like, you know, the, that thing they say, there's that quote, and I think in line with this habit, it's sort of like in conflict. You know, I think they say, um, don't look at the end of the staircase, just take the first step. Yes. Yeah, first step, 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 step. And when you get there, you get there. But this one is basically saying, look, before you even take the first step, where are you going? I actually think the two work together. So let's talk about that for a bit. So how does this work? If you're thinking about planning for the whole year, what you say to yourself is, so what are we now? We're in June. No, we're in May. So let's say by 1st June next year, a full calendar year from now, what do I want to be doing? Okay. Okay. But it's very difficult to only look at that goal. So what I now need to do is I need to break it into bite-sized chunks of what am I going to do each month? So fine. By 1st June, 2024, I want to be doing A, B, C, D, E, F. But to achieve that, what am I going to do in June 2023, in July 2023, in August 2023? So let me pick June. But a month is still a long time. So I now take my month and I break it into further by downsizes, weeks. So at the beginning of each week on a Sunday, I now plan what I'm doing. So that step that you're talking about is the equivalent of the week. So yes, for now, I look at my one step, but my step should still be in the right direction. I must know whether my step is pointing left or right based on where I'm trying to go. So I actually think the two things work together. Okay. And, and now to answer my question, as in how do you, you know, actually begin with the end in mind, what wisdom is contained in the book? What advice is there in the book? If someone's going to read the book about beginning with the end in mind, what are the details? The main detail there is the plan. It's, it's, it's not really, how can I put it? So for example, let's think about my role here. <clears throat> When yeah. I was speaking earlier, I mentioned to you that I'm a facilitator yes. for Franklin Covey. Why do we call it a facilitator? Why do you say I'm a trainer? Because we don't train. That's not what we do. Training is knowledge transfer. But we're not imparting knowledge itself. What we're doing is we're enabling people to unlock aspects of themselves. Each person has this within themselves. You have it. I have it. We all have it. But what we do is we facilitate to enable you to do these things. And we allow, we help you think through and think differently. So if we go back to the first thing I mentioned again of self-awareness, because everything unlocks from there. Once you've got that, you too will accept to say that to build a house, I must have an idea at least what I want it to look like. I can't just start building. Even if it is a rough sketch, I must have something. Otherwise, what will I build? Will it have two bedrooms? Will it have three? Will it have four? I don't know. But once I sketch it out, even my rough sketch will show three bedrooms, two bedrooms. Self-contained master. Uh, open plan living room, dining room, for example. So these are the tips. It's just allowing you to say to yourself, you, you have to think ahead. And that is the tip itself. So don't focus just now on step number one. It's great, yes, for the plan of what you're trying to do for tomorrow. But you must try and visualize at step number six, where must it be pointing? Where are you heading to and what are you trying to achieve? So that's what we try to help you do with that here. It's to see ahead and then work backwards to that same goal that's ahead. All right. Overall, what would you say is, is the impact of these seven habits on people's social relationships and just the dynamics of society? For someone that reads this book and they, you know, they practice these habits, what is the impact on their relationships and dynamics either at work or in their business? I will start with evidence that Franklin Covey has, uh, and now I mean Franklin Covey, the, the actual original company, um, a lot of um, seven habits implementations have been done in companies. And with companies, it's very easy to track metrics, KPIs. So in each department, a company may break down these metrics to decide what is it they're trying to see, what will be the impact of the seven habits facilitation. So if I pick a a large multifaceted organization, for example, it may have a sales department. It may have an HR department. It may have a service department. 
It may have a parts department and a procurement department. So if we then go into a service department, what could be the metrics of what are the changes after implementing the seven habits? Well, we could look at, well, where are we now? What is the rate of return? We look at our repair rate and we say, well, look, from every 100 repairs that we do, we get 15 returns for the same problem. So we can then go in and implement the seven habits and then come back and look at that metric. And in many cases, in fact, in almost all cases, we see the improvement. So if it was 15 returns, for example, you'd be dropping down to 10, to 9, to 8. And this would go across all the different areas. If it's sales, the sales figures would go up, the volumes would go up. If it's HR, turnover would be reduced, and so on and so forth. If it is procurement, time to receive the goods, which is what's important, is reduced. And are the goods correct? More times than not. First things first, how do I prioritize? You know, I learned um, some time back that the word um, priority um, had no plural. It actually used, like now the code priorities, like, you know, you must have priorities. Those days, I, I, it must be is it up to 1970 something, I think, that they actually introduced it as a plural. It was always singular because in the past, the belief is you cannot have more than one priority. You must always prioritize one thing at a time. How do I put first things first? Okay. Interestingly formed question. <laughs> You've got me thinking. Um, I think that old definition is correct. Uh, you see, the reason for having defined it that way is to, uh, it's to minimize ambiguity so that people are not confused. So even though we talk about priorities, notice the habit, as you said, put first things first. Only one thing is first at any one time. Something else is second, something else is third, something else is fourth, but only one thing is first at a particular time. Once you break down the tasks now, from a team perspective, you may have different people doing different things starting simultaneously. So for you, the team leader who's tracking the project, you may have projects that appear to start simultaneously. But for the individuals actually doing the execution, you will not have one person executing more than one thing at a time. It will be one thing at a time. So you now need to make sure that that one, um, one thing, uh, you start off with any of your prerequisites. So usually in project management, as we're defining the different steps, we list all the different prerequisites for a particular step. Then we know what has to be done before that. So we work backwards. For me to go from here to Mwansawombwe, what do I need? I may need a vehicle. Okay. Is the vehicle all I need? Well, no, the vehicle may need fuel. Okay. What fuel do I get? Is there only one type? No. So I must find out what type of fuel the vehicle gets and so on and so forth. And I keep working backwards until I have everything at a granular level. And then I now start working my way back forward. And that's how I would do it. That's what we'd recommend. How easy is it to put first things first? It's not, if that's not your natural thing to do, you have to force yourself. So, and I ask that in a world where they believe multitasking is an achievement. It's a skill to multitask, do different things that are go. And at the end of the day, when you look back, it's 5 p.m., you look back at the day, you, you really can't point at what you actually achieved because you are multitasking. You touch here, you touch there, you touch there. Correct. And that is why we have to train ourselves. See, when we multitask, particularly in a work environment, what happens usually though is we leave one task to then start another one. So you're in the middle of one thing, an email comes in, and then you start responding to the email but then you've left that other task that you were on before. And then while responding to that email, someone walks into your office and says, come and see this. So you now have to train yourself to say, no, 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 wait a minute. I've got this email that I need to finish first. And I've got that task that I was working on. I'll be with you in 15 minutes. You see what people don't realize about a lot of crises and a lot of, um, um, well, crisis management is the majority of human beings simply need to be communicated to as to where are we now? What is happening? And how long will it take to resolution? Once you give a human being those three things, they will give you whatever time you need to do what you need to do. It's not about just dropping everything now, because even if you go there and get there now, will you be effective when you get there? Will you do anything or will you simply be there? If the objective is to resolve a crisis, then you have to think it through. When I get there, will I resolve the crisis? Because if I won't, my getting there is pointless. I must get there and resolve the crisis. So I must communicate this to you. So... If I go back to my example, I'm working on a task, an email comes in, and then someone walks in to call me. I now process that. I understand what that needs. I go back to finish my email. I complete my task. I then get ready what I need to go with to go and resolve that crisis. 
But remember, I've communicated already to say, I need 30 minutes, I need one hour, I need two hours. What will cause a problem here is if I say I'm coming now and then I take four hours and then I don't answer my phone. That's the problem. The problem is not the crisis. It's the lack of communication about what's going on. So that's what we also talk about here. You need to be able to manage yourself and to manage others. And that's part of managing them. You're managing the expectations. How do I run away from always wanting to be the hero? Because from what you said, um, and, and it happens a lot of times, um, especially people who are good at their job. Uh, there's this thing saying, I, I, I saw, I think on Instagram, where they're saying, um, employees who are good at their job end up doing other people's jobs. So like I said, you're working on your email, someone comes and says, no, there's a problem inside because it's, it's Chewa, who can sort it out? So go to Chewa, he's your guy. And because Chewa wants to be a goody two-shoes, he stands up and goes to a task and his work suffers. How do I avoid, um, you know, wanting to be a hero for everyone else at the expense of doing what should come first first? How do I develop that? Because like I said, a habit is not developed at a glance. It's yes. developed over time. How do I develop that kind of a habit? Because like you said, and I think you said it earlier, it's hard to say no. You know, you're in the middle of your email, in the middle of your task, someone comes and says, no, there's a problem inside. Or, and sometimes people just use, no, the boss is calling you. Okay. So whenever we work in an institution, all of us have KPIs. We've got tasks that we must do. And those tasks are specific to our job position, our job function, and our department. If we spend more time helping others who may be in different department, when it comes to our own performance review, we're definitely going to fail. That's what's going to happen. We would not have done what we were supposed to do. So if someone finds it possible to first achieve everything they're supposed to achieve within their own space before they go out to others, well, good for them. But I'm sure you've heard the saying where they say, you must be able to help yourself so that you can help others. The better you are at completing your job, the more you'll be able to help others effectively. Because if you spend all your time on other people's jobs, you yourself will not have a job soon. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's what will happen. Uh, think win-win. Um, how easy is it to strike a deal? Whether it's a sales deal, it's a what, or I mean, you are selling a book, I am selling a camera, I'm selling a what. In the current dynamics of the economy, of the environment, how easy is it, for example, to make a sale? I'm going to break this into two parts. Making the sale is one thing. But ensuring you do it in a win-win fashion is a different thing. Okay? So, making a sale overall, over time, depending on what you're doing, could seem to be easy. And I'm going to go back and use the Pareto principle, which is the 80-20 rule. 10% of people will be superstar salespeople without any training. They just have something naturally in them and they sell. 10% of people will be terrible salespeople. No matter what you do, you'll never be able to get them to sell above a certain point. The only time they will sell is when a customer just comes in determined to buy something, regardless of what help they get. But those people in between, that 80%, that's where most of us fall. And when you follow some of these habits, the idea is to move you towards the better 10% than the worse. So more, more of the 80% become more effective in selling. So now to answer the question in the way that you put it, which was how easy is it to sell? Um, when you become good and certain things become certain nature, they may feel easy to the person who does it, but it's not so much that it's easy rather than it's becoming second nature because you've practiced so much and you've done it. And if you remember what you've done to get to that point, you definitely want to convince yourself that it's easy. So no, it's not easy, but what is more difficult is to ask yourself, what is best for my customer? If my customer decides to buy a $1 million solution for me today, but I know that a $200,000 solution will do. Do I have the strength to ask them why they want a $1 million solution and try and sell them the $200,000 solution? That's the tough part. That's the think win-win. And why is it win-win? Because someone will say, well, you might lose $800,000. Well, let's analyze this. I let the customer buy this solution for $1 million. Two months after that, they meet you, who's in my same business. And then you look at it and say to them, but why didn't he just sell you the $150,000 solution? I never hear from them again. They develop a long-term relationship with you. And over the next 15 years, you make $35 million worth of business for them. So sure, I got $800,000, but you got 35. So who's winning between you and I? So if we go back to the example that I gave, had I just given them the $150,000 solution, 
And then two weeks later, they meet you and they speak to you. And then you confirm that it is a $150,000 solution. It builds confidence in me. And then over the next 20 years, I make the $35 million worth of business. I still win. My client wins. That's an example of think win-win, for example, from a sales perspective. Now, that's not easy, though, I'll admit, because generally in sales, we tend to think about the immediate because we get commissions. Commission on $1 million is a lot better than commission on $150,000. So it's about now thinking about intent as well. And that's why we talk about that in the seven habits. We ask, what is your intent? What are you trying to do? In sales, we try to make a long-term relationship so that over time, both parties win. It's not about sell now and never see the customer again. Okay. In the, in, in the context of an organization, you've got an employee who has his own interests and the organization that has its own interests. How does a win-win situation get created from the employee's perspective, from the employer's perspective? Because at the end of the day, I mean, as an employee, I've got my interests. Oh, I want my family to be okay. I want the money. I want to go on holiday. I want to what? But also the organization also has what they expect to be done. And how do you strike that win-win so that at the end of it, in the relationship, none of the two parties feels hard done by? It's a very good question. Um, it's not always easy to implement what were, well, the example that I'll give on this. But again, the best example I'll give is, what do we want long-term out of this interaction? So let's say I work for you. Do I want one day to stop working for you, to go somewhere else and not be able to mention that I work for you because you're going to say nasty things about me? Do I want one day when I'm running my own business to not be able to come back to you and try and get business? No, I don't want those things. So in order for me to make sure things don't end that way, at each step of the way, I have to be conscious and cognizant of the fact that while I've got my objectives, you two have yours and where do they meet? So the perfect example I like to give is in an interview for an employer and a salary negotiation. If I'm sitting there as the employee, my objective there is to try and get as much money as possible for as little work as possible. Whereas if I'm sitting there as the employer, it's to get as much work as possible for as little money as possible. Okay? So the employee wants as much money as possible for as little work as possible. And the employer wants as much work as possible for as little money as possible. So what do we do? We now try and meet a middle ground where both parties can be happy. But unfortunately in business, this will be the natural positions. Because of course, there's no point in being in business if you've got no goals. So you're trying to do something with the business and controlling your cost is one of those things. So you don't go throwing away money, but you must keep in mind fairness. So if both of you approach that negotiation from a fair perspective, you will eventually reach somewhere that works for both of you and you will agree and you'll shake hands. And if it can't work, you can go different ways and maybe you'll make that win-win situation with someone else. Then I hope that makes yeah, sense. It makes, how do you know that, okay, this is a win-win? So many skills have to be put together here, especially if you're one of the parties reading this. So one, you need to be able to try and read and understand people because as human beings, there's a lot of things we don't say. Sometimes you can get a bigger message from what we don't say rather than from what we say. Body language, for example, says a lot of things. So if as a discussion is going, I start to do certain things like that and close up, that is a sign of something. If I start to smile more and get relaxed, that is a sign of something. Over time, you need to start to get to understand what do these things mean? Are they cues? Is it a hint at something? So it starts to tell you and you start to understand. Look, sometimes it won't work. I'm not saying this will work with every scenario and not everybody's meant to work for you. So maybe that particular person who the negotiation is not working with was never meant to work for you. But eventually you will find that right person. And the two of you come there with an open mind. You try and look out. You accept that sometimes people accept things, even though they're not happy with them. So you try and make sure they're happy. You talk them through it. You give them a chance to go and think it over and come back to you, which is why that usually happens. You get an offer letter. You've got a couple of days. You can consult people. You can say, is it fair? But you've also got to say to yourself, what is my objective? And what I like to tell people, don't you think it'll be easier if you go into the business, demonstrate what you can do, and then now push for that higher salary? Because if you're doing that from the beginning, your, pro your prospective employer doesn't yet know what you're bringing to the table. But once they do and they value you, things change. So again, in that moment, you've got to ask yourself, what is my objective here? What am I trying to achieve from this particular interaction? Well, I want to get into the business because I know that if I get in, I will show them what I'm made of. Just like if you know you're good at interviews, all you need to do is get into the interview. 
So your whole cover letter, your whole CV is designed to get you into the interview because you know, once you get into the interview, you will blow their minds away. You will impress them and you'll get an offer. The trick is to simply get to the interview. So likewise, the trick could be to get into the business. Then you will work hard. You will achieve your objectives. You will show them that you're an invaluable member of the team. And hopefully they'll reward you for that. What do you make of those that begin to hold back because they refuse to, 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 to negotiate upwards? You're in the business, you want to give so much, but you think uh, they refuse to, to, to go upwards. So let me give them what I feel is commensurate to what their offer was. Are you saying this from the employer's perspective or the employee? The employee's perspective. The employee's perspective. None of, okay, these things are not necessarily an exact science. And I do get where you're coming from on that. It's a very good question and it's a tough one. It's not an easy one. Uh, even the example that I was giving you of trying to say and negotiate something, it's a constant struggle between one, you must look out for yourself and you must try and get what is due to you. But two, you must also ask yourself, am I being fair while I'm doing this? And this is a question I ask myself whenever I'm buying things from a marketeer. Something in all of us, naturally, when we go to a marketeer and they tell us the tomatoes are 40 kwacha, it's just natural to say, well, can I give you 35? Yet when we walk into ShopRite and pick up the same packet of tomatoes and it's 40 kwacha, we don't get to the counter and say, can I give you 35, do we? So what makes us think that we can tell the marketeer to take 35 and not ShopRite? So we must ask ourselves now, are we being fair? Is that five kwacha more important to you or to the marketeer? For example. That's what I would say to someone. You need to think it through. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So habit number five is seek first to understand and then understood. Why would you say this is important? So before it is your turn to be understood, try and understand the other person first. It is important because it shows the other party in that conversation that you value their input, that you're listening to them. And if you think about this, it, even if it's a coworker, if, if it's a spouse, a significant other, one of the big issues that comes up a lot is, are you hearing me? Are you listening? So by seeking first to understand, you are listening. You are showing that you're listening. And over time, that builds a lot of goodwill with human beings. In the seven habits, we teach a concept called the emotional bank account. And that emotional bank account Think of it as a store of goodwill. Now, I use the term teach there only because I'm referring to a concept that someone may not be aware of. We're still facilitating, but the teaching here is possibly bringing ideas that someone may not have been conversant with before. So in the emotional bank account, the concept is you have something very similar to a cash bank account, but it's an account of goodwill. So say between you and I, two parties, we have an emotional bank account. Every time you do something positive for me, your goodwill with me builds up. Every time I do something good for you, my goodwill with you builds up. If I start to do negative things, I start to chip away at that goodwill. So in our environment in Zambia, borrowing money and not paying it back would be a perfect example. I borrow a hundred kwacha from you today and I don't pay it back. Ah, you let it slide because over all the other times I borrowed a hundred kwacha, I brought it back. The next time I borrow a hundred kwacha from you, Maybe you remind me to say I never paid back the last one. So now I say, sure, I'll pay back the last hundred kwacha in this one. I take it and then I still don't bring it back. When I come the third time and say, okay, lend me hundred kwacha now and I'll pay back the other 200 that I owe. Do you think you're going to give it to me? Most likely no. No. And at some point you'll stop. So I've run out my emotional bank balance. So seeking first to understand is a key component of ensuring that bank balance is as topped up as possible. It's a key component in that interaction that feeds that emotional bank account. But more importantly, it allows you to understand because again, human beings are complex and we have layers and you may not even be understanding what the situation is until you allow the person to express themselves fully and you get to the bottom of it. And many things that happen in the workplace too, primarily are down to me. In fact, not just the workplace in life, it's down to misunderstandings. Look at how world war one and world war two are started. Look at many other conflicts. They're down to misunderstandings. So that's why it's important. In the context of, I know that you are a trainer for organization, but... Facilitator. Oh, facilitator. So, oh, you don't train. Facilitator, yes. Yeah. I know that you, you are a facilitator. But, but seeing as you've read The Seven Habits, in the context of a marriage, 
How would you say this applies? Seek first to understand and then be understood. Imagine your partner has a problem and they want to discuss it with you. And they start to describe, and I'm going to pick a common paradigm that happens between a husband and a wife. And the wife is trying to explain that something's wrong with the car. And the husband assumes the wife doesn't know anything about cars. And before she even finishes, he's already telling her what to do to fix it. For example, it might help to listen first and understand what's going on. Maybe there isn't even a problem with the car, for example. Okay. Sometimes as human beings, we're not even seeking a solution. Maybe we just want to vent. Maybe there was nothing for you to guide your partner on. And maybe they just needed you to hear them and hear what they were saying and understand what was going on in the day. And all you might need to say is, I see, I understand. That might be all. But because you cut them off, because you didn't get to the end and you don't realize that, and because you start responding with a the solution, they now realize that you weren't listening to them. Over time, it does the same thing I just described. It starts to take away from the emotional bank account. And it starts to build this perception that you don't listen. Now, maybe you do, but perceptions are very strong and sometimes they can be stronger than reality. So as long as that's the perception you're building, you'll still go down the same path as if that's what was really happening. That's why it's very important. Okay. And in the context of, of an, uh, an organization, because um, in the workplace, you're dealing with supervisors, you're dealing with coworkers, people above your station, those below you, um, CEO, directors, functional heads. How can I apply this habit? So in the workplace, this habit tends to have more significance when the power parity between the person speaking, the one who needs to be understood, and the person understanding when there's an imbalance in the power parity. So say it is a direct report and their supervisor. This situation would have a better positive impact for the direct report to feel that their supervisor is listening in the long-term relationship than the other way around. You see, with the supervisor, they'll just say that person doesn't listen, but they don't necessarily take it personally. They look at it more from a functional perspective. But with your direct report, they may feel valued. And when an employee feels valued, they tend to work better. You create a better workplace environment for them. So it is particularly important when there's a difference in power parity for us to listen and understand what's being said to us. And you get more out of your team from it. Synergize is habit number six. What, 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 what is a book trying to achieve with this habit? So if, um, I hope I can find the page and show it here. There's something called the maturity continuum. And if I give that to you in the context of that, it's very good. So basically, and hopefully you'll be able to put a graphic up of this later at some point, there is this circle and it's called the maturity continuum. And in this circle, the top section is interdependence, which is, in fact, I hope the camera can see it. So what we're trying to do here is we start from the bottom. We're deemed to be dependents down here. We're working our way up. So here we're working on ourselves. It's the private victory. That's why it says that over here. When we get up to here, what you're talking about, number six, synergize. This is now about getting the most out of the whole team working together. And if you look carefully, we've crossed independence and we're moving over to interdependence. This is, goes back to the example that I gave you earlier where I said, if you alone can achieve 85% and I alone can achieve 85%, together we want to achieve 300%. It gets the most out of the team. And many of the big movements in the world, the big changes that affect how we live, have been achieved by teams. Yes, we say what Elon Musk has done with SpaceX is phenomenal. A private company is taking people and equipment into space and to the moon. But is it Elon Musk alone that did this? Can Elon Musk build a rocket ship on his own with no one else helping it? No, it's his team. I gave an example of Jeff Bezos at Amazon. Did Jeff Bezos build that on his own? Is he the one who fills orders? Does he package things? Does he deliver them? No, he's got a team. To achieve great things, usually we need teams. So synergize focuses on how do we get the most out of our team? How do we take the results exponential? The book says, habits, seven habits of highly effective people. How do we achieve more effectiveness in teams? Because some teams are disoriented. You've got a team. This is our target. It's not met because people have got their own personal targets. And, you know, there's 
it's like goals are all over the place. How do you achieve more effectiveness in teams? So seven habits, by the way, uh, Franklin Covey, sorry, have a very specific addition facilitation of seven habits that we call seven habits for managers. And in that specific one, it focuses on concepts like the one you're asking that help managers to discuss with their teams and work with their teams and get more out of them. So what will be focused in there is all the different facets of the team. So one of them, for example, would be the planning phase. Another one would be the reporting phase. What is the structure of the reporting, the regular meetings, measuring the KPIs, keeping people motivated by acknowledging those that do well, that do good, how to speak to those that don't do well. It's a whole combination of skills that need to be brought together to get the most out of your team. All right. Um, and, and how do you um, have people put their weight? Because in every team, there are those top performers and then there are those underachievers. How do you approach underachievers as you try to synergize? So I'll even start before we even get to that point. So if you're the supervisor and you are involved in the hiring, um, you've also got to be very careful because the hiring is the entry point. Some people will always be in the bad 10%, no matter what you do. So you're going to try and make sure you hire right. So there's a concept of hire slow, but fire fast. Now, I'm not advocating that people should get fired, but it is your responsibility to build the team that will make you succeed. So you need to make sure that the team can do that. So you can try up to a certain point, but beyond that, you must make sure you have the right team. Maybe that person might work better in a different team. Sometimes people excel in different departments. So you may notice that that person has a particular skill that you think may work better in a different department. And you might, for example, help them move to that department and then bring someone else in. But you must address non-performance immediately. Otherwise, it'll drag the whole team down. Because for you as a team, if you fail to achieve your objective, you've all failed. Your responsibility is not divisible in the team. You all fail if the team fails. So you as a supervisor bear the responsibility of making sure that your team is effective. All right. The, the final habit is sharpen the saw. I'm, I'm assuming I got the saw correct, right? That is Sharpen correct. the saw. Yeah. Um, and, and earlier on, you did allude to the fact that it's more around your social interaction, your downtime, you know, how do you know that now is time to sharpen the saw? Let me go and, you know, do some time time. Is it like, oh, once a year holiday or how, how frequent is this sharpening? Um, there isn't a hard and fast rule, you, each human being being a bit different, but generally, if a human being works for too long without any form of constructive distraction, distraction, things start to fall apart. So if the person has a personal life and they have no time for their family or their partner, things start to fall apart there. So there's no rule that says I must speak to my significant other, my child, my uncle, my aunt once a week. But we must understand that at some point there must be some sort of interaction. We must make time for this. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but I think all of us can start to understand that certain things must happen at certain intervals. We must make time to do things as families with significant others. We must make time to visit certain uncles. For example, I might need to visit an uncle only once every two months. But it may not be practical to see my significant other once every two months if we're in the same town. That's a bit different. So you'd sort of have to feel the pulse of it and gauge it best on your own situation. But that's not the only thing, of course. What about the things you do for yourself? So for some people, for example, spirituality is very important. So for example, being involved in a church activity in a small Christian community, I think they call them, something like that, that might help them reset and refresh. Other people, it might be a game of golf. It could be the gym. How do you avoid over sharpening the saw where it's now too much social activity, little work every weekend, every time, every time <laughs> just sharpening the saw? <laughs> so you see that <laughs> it's a good question. Um, at that point, we've lost sight of what the saw is, <laughs> right? The saw is the effectiveness of all those other habits we spoke about. Habit one, habit two, habit three, habit four, habit five, habit six. That's what we're sharpening. So by doing this unrelated activity, it allows us to be better back at this. But when we start to focus on these unrelated activities, what we're now sharpening is the unrelated activities. 
And over time, what happens? The main activities where we get paid start to fall apart. We lose our job. And if we lose our job, certain other things start to fall away as well. Okay. So we have gone through these seven habits. Someone becomes a master at this. What kind of person are we looking at? Um, I would like to, first of all, change the manner in which your sentence was structured. Why? Because I don't believe anyone ever becomes a master at it per se. It's a continuous journey. Keep working at it. You sound like a master. I'm certainly not. <laughs> I can assure you. <laughs> it's I wish I was. <laughs> it's a journey. It's, it's something you do repeatedly. It's something you remind yourself to do. Now, look, remember that example I gave about 10% are good salespeople, 80% are in the middle and 10% are bad. Things like effectiveness are also similar to that. So think of soccer players. You can find a kid who's never formally trained, but he'll become a very good soccer player. But others have to work at it. So first of all, let's focus on the average person, which is the 80%. For the average person, we have to work at all sorts of things, not just this. We have to write down things. We have to remember to do them. Sometimes we even have to remember to call our mothers, our fathers. We have to say to ourselves, oh my God, it's been two weeks. I haven't called my mom. Let me call her. So for the average person, which is most of us, it is a journey. And it's a journey in which we never reach the end. We're constantly working at it. And that's the beauty of the way this program is structured. That's why I really like it. It's, it's broken down. It's got all these tips and tools that you can use to allow you to do just that. You can even have an app on your phone that sends you a reminder one day of which one concept to work on just for that day. Because you may be overwhelmed to think about all of this. How many pages is this book? You may be overwhelmed to say to yourself, how do I effectively memorize and work on, yeah, over 360 pages? Well, you don't have to. All you have to do on any given day is work on one aspect. So today we could work on the emotional bank account. And that's all I have to think about for today. Okay. There's something you mentioned like, the last time that we met, the first time we met, um, about selling. I, I, I know it's not part of the habits, but, but it caught my attention. I felt like that's the kind of stuff that most people have to know. Um, making a sale uh, for people who, I mean, a business, a customer walks in or I walk in and how, how would you, you know, the, the, the things that people don't focus on, that's what struck me the most, where you say it, it's not really about, oh, I'm selling this hourglass. Oh, okay. So, you know, hourglass, this is, I know talking about the hourglass, but you talked about talking about other things unrelated to the hourglass and the hourglass is by the way, and then I make the sale. Talk me through that for the sake of those people that went, went there. I'd like you to break down that. It's an interesting question that you bring up. And it's particularly interesting to me because Franklin Covey Institute do have a sales training program that is called Helping Clients Succeed. And in there, it goes through the in-depth life cycle of a sale. Yes, at some point you do need, you will talk about what it is you're trying to sell. But if you think about going back to the beginning of the conversation, so say you're in your office and I'm doing a cold call and I come to you and then all of a sudden, I'll use your example of that same hourglass. I just start pushing that hourglass. If you're not interested in that hourglass and I haven't made any other conversation with you and that discussion ends and you never want to talk to me again, well, then that's it. But what if I don't only sell hourglasses? Or what if I don't only sell them in orange or in pink or in blue? What if I sell books to? What if I sell water to? If I come in there and just talk about the hourglass, I might lose an opportunity to sell water to you. But even then, I'm not implying that I must come in there and in five minutes tell you everything I sell. So what might work better for me is to build a relationship with you. Why? Because once we have a relationship, next time you're trying to buy a book, you might pick up the phone and call me and say, hey, Chewen, do you sell books? But if I don't start to build that relationship with you, you won't. So that's what I was talking about. And to do that, you need to train yourself to not necessarily focus on the sale. You need to think at each stage, what am I doing? So when I'm getting a client for the first time, what am I doing? I'm trying to build a relationship. I want us to keep talking. That's what I'm doing. I'm not making a sale. That may come up later. I may want to sell later. So I'm building a relationship. In that building of the relationship, I let you know what I do. I'm a facilitator at Franklin Covey. Maybe later when we're talking about that, we may discuss it. But for now, I'm building a relationship. I want you to know about my company. I want to know about yours. And I want you to know that I'm there if you need to ask something. So that's the phase that I was talking about. And that's what I meant by that. Sometimes. If we miss that step and we just try to go full on into the sale, we lose the client because we haven't even heard them. We haven't understood. Maybe we don't even know if they're ready to buy now because not every customer that we talk to today is ready to buy now. 
What if they want to buy next year? Do we start trying to sell now? No, we don't. But what we want is when they wake up next year on 23rd June, 2024, and they want to buy, I want to be the person they think about. So how do I do that? I do that by building the relationship. All right. So Franklin Cave, you are a facilitator. So how, how does it work for you guys? Um, and who is your target? Is it individuals, organizations? I know you touched on organizations. I'm not sure about the individuals. How does it work if people want to, for example, contract you guys to facilitate or, you okay. know? You are our target, Suilanji. So first of all, it is frankly Kami Zambia. And what do I mean by you? You is everybody. You is me. You is you. You is everybody not here in this room. Everybody could work at being better. Everybody could work at being more effective. SpaceX have now sent... Let's, for argument's sake, say they've sent five records to space. It's possible if they were more effective, they could have sent 10 by now, for example. So the target audience is everyone for Franklin Covey Zambia. Anyone who feels that they want to get more from what they do. They want to achieve greater results. They want to achieve new things, new heights, do things they've never done before. Reach targets and goals they've never done before. Grow their business exponentially. Increase their customer base. Improve their customer satisfaction reviews. It could be any of those things. If you are looking for an improvement in a certain aspect of your business or of your life, we believe the seven habits can address that for you. All right. So even do one-on-ones? It can be done. We do have coaching sessions that help after that. They're part of the program. It's a very dynamic program. So okay. the answer is yes. And how are you reachable? Uh, we're reach about our website, which is www.franklincoveyzambia. Am I correct? No, I'm not. You're correct. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. I could be more effective at yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> you, you need the seven habits. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, if you were to contact the Franklin Covey Institute directly, they would then direct you back to us in Zambia because we are the official agent for Zambia. So that's one way. You could go to the Franklin Covey website. You could raise a query there. It will definitely be routed back to Franklin Covey Zambia. All right. And your Zambia line? Um... <laughs> Okay, we'll run the numbers, we'll run the numbers I'm, I'm on the screen. Yeah. But otherwise, um, thank you very much, Achewe. Anything else okay. before I close our podcast? Um, From all the things that you said, if you were to tell people to take one takeaway, what would it be? The one takeaway would certainly be about being self-aware. That's it. That would be the one thing. In fact, even if they had done this whole thing and then they were to ask me, which one thing should I be? paying attention to, I would say it's self-awareness because that allows us to acknowledge and know that we need to improve. It allows us to know that something either needs to go left or right to change, be better. That is the beginning. So self-awareness, do you know yourself? All right. Thank you very much. Um, the book I'm sure is found in Book World, right? And that other bookstore at Ispark. Um, um, I know, um, what's the name again? Uh, what's the bookstore at Ispark? There's another famous bookstore, Eastpark. But obviously in all leading bookstores, the book's available, right? Indeed it is. It's available online. It's on Amazon. It's widely available. All right. No, thank you very much, uh, Chewe, for your time. Um, and, and we look forward to seeing you improve in the seven habits because you said you also a bit, you know, also need to improve. Because I thought um, that at some point you become a master. That's what I thought. But um, like you said, it's, it's, it's a continuous process. And I feel like that's why they keep releasing these books because that's 25th anniversary, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. And it's up to what you said, 30th now? Yes. But they're all the same in terms of someone who's read the 20th. The habits themselves the, are the same. That's the correct. habits don't change. And the principles themselves are the same. But how we present it to the person in order for them to understand may differ. But the core habits and the principles are timeless. That is all correct. Right. No, thank you so much yeah. and, and all the best. And if someone wants to walk in, where are you guys found, by the way, if you want to walk in? We are on Ingwe Road, right opposite the Puma. Um, Woodlands A Primary School, I believe. Yes. There's yes, a junction yes, there. Yes, so there's Ingwe yes, Road there, right there in that corner. There's Puma on one side. There's Franklin Cabe Zambia on the other side. Ah, I know where you guys are. It's straight opposite Woodlands A along. Correct. Like, okay, you can even see it on Ch Chindo Road, right? Yes. Yes, Chindo That's Road. That's correct. All right, cool. Thank yeah. you very much, uh, Chewie, okay. for coming. Um, and thank you guys for watching the podcast. Uh, please uh, feel free to get in touch with um, Franklin Cabe Zambia on the numbers um, that we did show and the website. Um, and you guys have um, a, I know you don't want to call it training, but you, you have a, cause I think um, she signed me up for a course on that. Okay. Tell me about that before you say bye. The facilitation? No, like a training, like you. Okay. So there are multiple ways that we deliver. Um, we've got an online program called yes, the All Access Pass, which is yes. AAP. It is self-paced and one could sign up and could use that through the Zambia office. And but what do they learn there? They learn the seven habits. 
They've got some online classes, but we also offer in-person, face-to-face. Many people like me, I prefer to learn my things face-to-face where I can. And for most people, it is found to be more effective. Sometimes it doesn't work, but when it can work and you want to do that, we also offer that. And we can do it either for an organization on their own internally, or we could do what we call a public session where there's multiple people that come on their own and you've got a group of diverse people from different organizations. And we can also just tailor make a solution for someone. So I would advise anyone who's looking to improve or become more effective in the business to come in and talk to us and see what we can design for them. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, tell a friend about the podcast um, and share it as well so that other people can also know about the seven habits and uh, practice them. Also, if you are in an organization, um, do not be selfish with the information. Share it with a friend uh, because you can't have one person in the team who is good at the seven habits or understand the seven habits and then the rest of the nine have no idea you are really going to just struggle um so please make sure you share the information do not be selfish and be self-aware like you said and we'll see you guys next week